All right. So we're going to be looking tonight at a New Testament overview of uh, the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, as well as the other general letters and the book of Revelation. Uh, the goal tonight is just to kind of do a flyover of these books so that we get a sense of what each book is about, so that as you read the Bible, you would at least have the broad picture in order to be able to read the Bible in a uh, better and more coherent way. Any of you ever watch the shows uh, like Flip This House or Flip That House or any of those iteration of the shows, right? Okay, so my dad actually got into flipping houses about 10, 12 years ago, and he did a couple of houses, and it was interesting to watch the process, right? It's to, to walk into this house that nobody else wants and to have a vision of what remodeling could look like in demolition in order to rebuild and restore and in the end have something beautiful. That's the reality of the gospel in our lives. That you and I have a life, have the house of our life that needs to be torn down and remodeled and rebuilt uh, in light of what Christ has done. And that's what we see in the letters uh, in the New Testament. We are after the time of Christ rising and returning uh, to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. And we are longing and waiting for that future day in which he will return in glory. And in the in-between, we are trying to take that good gospel truth and apply it to our lives. And so we see that play out in these letters. In fact, we see shortly after Jesus rises from the dead in AD 33, a few years later, the Apostle Paul actually comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You can read in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 that Saul, as he, his name was, actually oversaw one of the first deaths within the Christian church. The uh, deacon named Stephen had rose up and began to declare the gospel and people charged him and killed him and Saul gave approval to that very murder. And yet God in his grace in Acts chapter 9, as Saul is on his way to Damascus, God stops him in his track, a bright light shines from heaven, and he's literally knocked off of his horse. Like there's so many modern day references that we see, knocked off a horse and, and saw a bright light, and you know, all of these references that really stem back to what happened to Saul. As he's seeking to persecute Christians, God shows up. And in that moment, we read in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 4, Jesus simply declares, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In light of Saul persecuting the church, Jesus identifies with the church. He says, what, what you do to them is what you do to me. And through a series of events Paul loses his eyesight for a few days, and a man named Ananias is sent by God to uh, bring the sight back to Paul, and with that, bring the gospel in which Paul then comes to faith and believes. And from that point on, we, we don't know for sure all the details, but we do know over the next 10 to 15 years, Paul 
uh, goes into some sort of training uh, in order to be prepared eventually to go into gospel ministry. And he eventually makes his way uh, to Antioch. So I've got a couple of maps here to show us. And we can see uh, over here, we see Israel and Jerusalem where Jesus is murdered and Saul is uh, doing his work as a Pharisee. But after he comes to faith in Christ, so you see he's going to Jerusalem to Damascus. But after he comes to faith in Christ, he goes and receives some teaching. And then he eventually makes his way to Antioch where Barnabas uh, brings Saul at the time, that's his name, brings him to Antioch in order to minister to that church there. And then we see in Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, as the leaders of the church were gathering and they were praying, God told them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. And at that point, we see Barnabas and Saul take their first, first missionary journey through what is now uh, Turkey. At the time, it was called Asia Minor. In most of the cities that they had stopped in, you can see is in the region called Galatia, to which he writes the letter to the Galatians. So that happens in the 40s. That's not 1940s. That's 0040s. And then from there, they return back to Antioch where they give a report to the church. And at that point, they are sent back out. And this time, as they are sent back out, uh, there's a disagreement. Apparently on the first trip, a man by the name of John Mark had deserted them because the work got too hard. And now Barnabas wants to bring John Mark again, and Paul does not want that to take place. And so there's a big riff, and they begin to go their own way. And so Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul eventually takes Silas, and he starts going into Galatia and into what was called Asia, that's western Turkey, until you get to Acts 16, where they have this vision. I believe it's Acts 16, 9. They get this vision at night where Paul is being called to go into Macedonia. And he crosses into Europe. And we see him beginning to minister to uh, Eastern Europe and down into Greece before he makes his way back down into Israel. Then... This is also in the 50s. He uh, later goes on a third journey. This is the third journey that he takes. And this journey is where he begins to uh, revisit some of these churches that he had already planted or had ministered to before. And Paul is just revisiting them to ensure that they are staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ before he eventually makes his way down to Jerusalem where he is arrested. At that point, you can continue through the book of Acts, and you see Paul then, during arrest, makes his way to uh, Caesarea. And as he's in Caesarea, he gives a uh, proclamation before uh, King Agrippa and uh, Felix, and then eventually he appeals to Caesar, and you can see the windy route that he takes on the rough seas of the Mediterranean before he finally reaches Rome. 
And that's where we find him. That's the last known place that we find him. There's debate about what happens to Paul. Some believe that he gets out of prison and eventually goes to Spain, which is what he desired. Uh, Others believe that he was martyred in prison, but either way, he was martyred for his faith sometime in the mid-60s. And as Paul writes these letters, he has a couple of concepts that he weaves throughout his letters. He regularly quotes, being a Pharisee and a religious person, he regularly quotes the Old Testament and sees and shows the connection to Christ. He also regularly focuses on the resurrection of Christ. Rarely does Paul look at the life of Christ. To Paul, the life of Christ is assumed in the resurrection of Christ, but a dead Christ changes nothing. It's a Christ that has died and has risen from the dead that changes everything. And so for Paul, he focuses on how do we live in light of this resurrection. Thirdly, we notice in these letters, Paul regularly uh, does a, a, uses a rhetorical device. He, he argues, and what they call this, he argues from the indicative. The indicative is just a statement. It's a fact. And he then moves to the imperative. Because that fact is true, here's the imperative, the command of what you must do. And all throughout his letters, you see those two tied together. And in the Christian faith, so often we like to separate them. Here's what you must do. But if it's not tied to what Christ has already done, that's legalism. Paul regularly ties those two together. Fourthly, as he writes to these uh, churches and writes these letters, he often will take the concepts that, are de- that they are dealing with within those churches and writes in particular to them. He contextualizes to what they're dealing with. Uh, fifthly, you'll see many of these letters he actually writes to churches or the pastor of the church. Paul cares about churches. God has always cared about his church. It's not our concept. Church is God's concept. Sixthly, we see that Paul regularly trains and releases guys for ministry. And then seventh, he just writes a lot about who God is. They call that theology. He just writes about how good God is, and because God is so good, it, it should change how we act. And so those are kind of the, the foundational concepts I want us to launch out of, and we're going to look at Paul's letters at a 50,000-foot level, and we're going to follow them by a timeline through a chronology, if you will. So let's look at the first one, which is the letter to the Galatians. We mentioned earlier that Galatia is a region in Turkey. And this is actually Paul's very first letter. They believe it was written in about 48 AD. And in particular, this church was dealing with the uh, mixture of uh, faith in God is by grace, and yet faith in God is by adhering and following the law. 
13 to 15 years after Jesus has died and rose from the dead, the church is already going and reverting back to their old ways. May we not be so arrogant to think that we will not revert back to old ways. In fact, we read the one who does revert back. We read in actually in chapter 1, uh, verses 6 to 10, Paul just is saying, hey, I'm shocked that you are deserting the gospel. Hey, this is not just any gospel. This is a gospel I told you. It's not a gospel I received from anyone other than Jesus. And we get to chapter 2, and we begin to see in verses 11 to 14 that this gospel, which is good news that we are saved from our sin because of the grace of God, not because of what we do, is forgotten by the most unlikely person, Peter. It's forgotten in the most unlikely way. Because apparently Peter was hanging out with the Gentile people. And the moment the Jews started coming around, he's like, Ooh, can't hang out with you anymore. You're dirty. You're unclean. I need to retreat and pull back. And I need to spend time with just the Jewish people. And what's so unlikely about that is that the only reason that the gospel goes to the Gentiles in the first place is because God revealed that gift to Peter. In Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this vision that this gospel can now go to the Gentiles. So the very person, like so often in the Christian faith, we think, I will never desert God. Any of you ever laid on top of your roof and had a dream of a sheep coming down from heaven with animals and God telling you to butcher those animals and that God has made those unclean animals now clean. Anyone have that vision before? Right? Nothing close to that. And yet, if Peter, who had that amazing vision, can so quickly forget the gospel that Paul has to oppose him, how much can we so quickly forget that gospel? And so Paul opposes Peter in Galatians. Some of the more famous parts of Galatians you can read in chapter 2, verses 15 to 21, that we are justified by faith. We're made right by faith. In the most famous verse, 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, my old ways are dead, and I'm now alive to these new ways. So much so that when we get to chapter 5, Paul tells us that we should actually put the old ways to death and walk by the Holy Spirit and begin to produce this fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's doing that because so often we mix works and grace. And he's trying to tease them out and say, no, 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 it's by grace. But this grace does not stay alone. It actually transforms us and results in good fruit in our lives. But that's not the only error 
that so quickly creeps into the church. We see the next letter that Paul writes is actually to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is on the eastern part of Macedonia in Europe, and we are now at A.D. 50 to 51, and Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica to defend against false accusations. It is not new that there are false accusations against church leaders. According to this, if I do my math correctly, it's about 1980 years old. I might have done my math wrong. Somewhere in there. It's about 1980 years old that we've been having false accusations. And they're saying, Paul, you're only preaching the gospel so that you can get money from us. And we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul says, whoa, whoa, time out, time out, time out. I treated you like a mom treats her baby. I didn't charge you. I gave you my life. I love you. Because the gospel is that important. But then they also struggled with this waiting game. Most of us do not like to wait. The church of Thessalonica did not want to wait for that future day of the Lord. And so people began to say, hey, we missed it. Jesus already returned. And Paul said, no, 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 you've, you've become mistaken. It has not happened yet. So continue living for Christ. Don't give up, but keep pressing. Apparently, that message did not get all the way through to them because very shortly, Paul follows up in the second letter to the Thessalonians uh, within six months to a year, actually. And they begin, or they continue their confusion about the day of the Lord to the point that some people said, Christ has already come or He's going to come soon, so I shouldn't go to work. And Paul says, uh, stop being lazy and get to work. We, do, you, do you start to see now like the, the struggles and the lies that have crept into the church today are not new. They're just on repeat. Christ has come or He's coming soon. The reality that uh, you need to mix faith with your works the accusations that are false against leaders. All of that is just embedded early on. And if matters were not bad, they become worse when we now get to the next letter that Paul writes, which is the letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a port city in Greece. It actually is close to two ports, uh, one on the Aegean Sea and one on the Mediterranean Sea. And so ships and, and uh, seamen could pass through that city. And if you know anything about port cities, just think about what happens when uh, Navy men get off of the ship. A lot of sin. And so they actually had a a temple in the city of Corinth that was to worship this goddess of sex. And we see a lot of that creep into the church at Corinth. And in A.D. 54 to 55, Paul writes what is they, they believe is the second of four letters to the church at Corinth. 
and he begins to address the immorality within the church. It is such rampant immorality that in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, Paul lists a series of lifestyle sins. These kind of sexual sins that people give themselves to and label themselves with. Does that sound familiar to our 2023 ears? These sexual sins, not this, hey, I had sex at one time outside of marriage and I repent of it. No, it's this, I am running to this and I'm giving myself to this and I don't care. And Paul says two things about that. He says, some of you were like that, meaning, praise the Lord, he changed you and you're not like that. But if you remain in that, there is condemnation and hell for that. And so we as a church weep and we pray and we ask the Lord to transform our hearts as a result in the hearts of those around us. But fortunately, we are not left alone. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he actually tells us that there is no temptation that has overcome you or overtaken you that is not common to man. So often we want to isolate ourselves and think that the sin we deal with is unique. It's not. It's common. Praise the Lord. Because God is faithful. He's not surprised. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is a way out, and the way out is not your way out. The way out is God's faithfulness providing you a way out. And he's telling this church the same thing. What's interesting, though, is whenever the sexual sins become prevalent, they are never alone. Sound familiar? Whenever sexual sins are prevalent, division is also prevalent, and self-promotion is also prevalent. We see this church also dealing with a kind of division that when they came together to take the Lord's Supper, people were eating without others because they were all about what they could get. We started to see in chapter 12 where some people had a certain spiritual gift and they began to elevate themselves and say, look at me and how great I am because I can speak in a tongue or I can heal. And, and Paul has to break that down and say, wait a second. Actually, if you know God's word, <laughs> that's the best gift that you can have. And then everything comes out of that. So we have the, this uh, triple pillar of sexual gratification and pleasure connected to self-promotion of elevating my abilities that is also tied to uh, division within the church. And those three often go hand to hand to the point that Paul then says in the famous chapter 13 that you might have used at your wedding. It wasn't about weddings, it was about the church. And Paul says to love one another. That so often we elevate ourselves. And instead we're supposed to look to the Lord and love one another out of loving 
the Lord. We are hard-headed folks, aren't we? We are stubborn in our sin. Because that was the second letter, and apparently Paul wrote four, and we still don't know if they got it. But we do have what we call 2 Corinthians, which they believe is the fourth letter, written just a year or two later in 55 to 56 AD, somewhere in that area. And Paul now has to write to not only clarify his prior writings, but has to write to defend his own ministry because people are saying, whoa, 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 we're so caught up in this self-praise and self-promotion that we're looking at the, these preachers and that preacher's really good and you're, you're kind of average, so that person must be better. There's a lot of guys on TV that I'm sure are more captivating than I am. Doesn't mean they're right. And it sounds like that's what was happening is that there were preachers that were very intriguing. They're good to listen to. And yet Paul says they don't know the truth. And so he begins to defend himself in this letter and help them to understand the truth of the gospel. Again, we're seeing all of these errors. And the church is only 25 years at best old, at most. Wow, how quick. From there, Paul begins to kind of take a little bit of a turn in the way in which he writes. Uh, he's getting towards the end of that third journey, and you begin to see a man move from combating error to looking westward and saying, there are new territories that do not have the gospel, and we need to go there. And so he begins to write this letter to the Romans that we spent a year and a half together walking through. And what we saw from chapter 15 is that the very reason Paul wrote Romans was not to solely declare the gospel. It was because he wanted to take the gospel to Spain. And he wanted this church in Rome to pay for it. And so he writes to people he doesn't know and ensures they're on the same page with him about the gospel so that when he stops in Rome, they would gladly support his ministry to go on to Spain. That's where we read the most famous and for us doubly most famous verse in Romans and maybe even throughout much of Scripture, doubly because we are in a Lutheran church and we come from the Protestant line in which Paul says this and Martin Luther in 1517 discovered the truth and the meaning behind Romans 1, 16 to 17. There, after much study and trying to figure out how we become right with God, Martin Luther gloriously rediscovered, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The way you and I are right before God is by faith. And we all say, praise the Lord, because I know my sin and I don't have a chance. That confessional is not open long enough hours for me to spend confessing all of my sin. But I have Christ who took it. And now I am called to live by faith rather than the Catholic way of confession and good works. And so Paul then unpacks this for the next 10 chapters. He begins to unpack that truth. And some of us grew up in a church where we heard the the term Romans Road. Anybody ever heard that before? Romans Road, okay. So you get to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. No one's immune. You get to Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned and now we all deserve death. But what's the next one on the Romans Road? We actually have to go backwards to go forwards. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love towards us. That while we had our stuff cleaned up. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Depends on which Romans road you take. You can get to Romans 8, 1, and Paul says the glorious statement, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. That is a glorious statement. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul unpacks that for 11 chapters. And he spends the last five chapters, chapters 12 through 16, in the book of Romans to say, if that is true, then how should it impact our life? And we can read very quickly in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, Paul just say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, this gospel should change you and cause every day of your life to now be a sacrifice unto the Lord. So that your mind is changed, your heart is changed, and you are now living this transformed life. That's the indicative of the first 11 chapters, the facts, and now the imperative of the last five chapters. Now live out of that. That's the command. So we see Paul declare that as he writes to this church in A.D. 57, Somewhere in there, Paul is arrested, 
We don't know the precise dating, but he returns to Jerusalem and he is arrested where they believe that while he was in prison, he wrote four letters, three to churches and one to a man. They do not know which prison because the debate on the prison, there is debate on the date of the letters. Uh, The seemingly more faithful dating would bring the book of Colossians up next, and that would be around 58 A.D. And now Paul is back to dealing with false teaching. This time it is this religious experience. People love to feel like they have some sort of religious insight that nobody else has. God's spoken to them, but nobody else. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm cool. I'm more spiritual than you because God spoke to me, but not to you. And we apparently see that in the book of Colossians to the point that Paul just starts in chapter 1. Hey, uh, Christ is the one. He is the one that is first over all. Not you, not me, not these rituals. And then in chapter 2, he begins to fight against these rituals, especially in verses 16 to 23. He calls this church to not get caught up into uh, celebrating certain days, but rather celebrating Christ. And as a result, in chapter 3, he starts with this Beautiful statement in chapter 3, verse 1, where he calls us to, uh, if then we have been raised with Christ, let us seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is saying, lift your eyes off of the physical things of the world and onto heaven in the throne room of God and set your eyes there. Capture beauty and live through that beauty. If you've seen a beautiful sunrise, it can change your morning. If you see the holy God and resurrected Savior, it should change your life. And so just like clothes, Paul says, Put off the dirty, soiled garments full of sin and instead put on these new garments full of righteous living. And he unpacks that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Continuing on, he then writes to a specific person. This is really the first letter that he writes to a specific person. It's also the shortest letter that Paul writes. And that is the short letter to Philemon, which they believe, uh, and I think is most faithful dating, is about 62 A.D. Again, the location is debated, but this time, Paul, being in prison, comes across a man named Onesimus. We don't know how they come in contact with one another, but what we know is that as Onesimus comes... Uh, he and Paul connect, and Paul learns that they have a mutual friend. That mutual friend is Philemon. But the problem is that Onesimus has uh, 
ran away from Philemon. And so he owes something to Philemon. And so Paul writes this letter for Onesimus to take back to Philemon to reconcile, but not to become a slave, but rather to become a brother in Christ. And so Paul's whole letter is written for the emphasis of forgiveness. Forgive the one who has wronged you. And nothing greater in this time would have, uh, no greater wrong really would have happened other than your slave running away and uh, damaging you financially. And now this slave is supposed to return and be forgiven. From there, Paul moves into the letter to the church at Ephesus. This is, outside of Romans, probably one of the most famous letters that Paul wrote. And this is really where you see this indicative, this is what has happened, and the imperative, this is what you must do, take place. The letter to the church at Ephesus was written in 62 AD. Ephesus is a city on western Turkey, uh, very close to the Mediterranean Sea. And the letter is divided into two halves. The first three chapters looks at the gospel. It starts with the gospel in eternity past. It begins to talk about how the gospel then gets played out in our life. And then how the gospel should be played out in the future. Where reconciliation between warring groups of Jews and Gentiles should come together. And then it's out of that, Paul says in chapter 4, Verse 1, where he says, I, therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So because of the first three chapters, now chapter 4, 5, and 6 are written, here's all the commands that you're supposed to do. If you're not careful, you'll get to chapter 5, you'll get to chapter 6, and you'll get to your power because you have forgotten chapters 1, 2, and 3, that it's not your power that drives 4, 5, and 6. It's God's power in the first three chapters that drives your action in the last three chapters. And chapter 4, verse 1, is that hinge point to marry those two halves together. Maybe two of the most famous parts in this letter are chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It is the succinct clarity of what God has done for you and I in giving us the gospel. And then in chapter 6, Paul is regularly throughout the letter of Ephesians making reference to the heavenly places and making reference to the the cosmos, the universe. And and we see why in chapter 6 because Paul says we are in this amazing spiritual battle that you and I do not realize. Like right now, you are in a spiritual battle. You are... Wanting to be distracted, you are maybe wanting to sleep, you are maybe thinking about all that you have to do. Three easy ways that the 
enemy wants to distract you from hearing what God's Word says. And that's just the three I can come off the top of my head. And that's on repeat. And we, if we want to follow Jesus, we regularly are in this war. And we have to recognize it and fight with the weapons that are listed in chapter 6, starting in verse 10 and following. Next, Paul's still in prison as of what we know. And we get to the short letter called Philippians. And this is a letter that is uh, intriguing and at times misunderstood because people miss a very short part that actually recategorizes the entire letter. In chapter 4, verse 2, we actually see the very reason Paul writes this entire letter. And we read, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What is that, ten, ten words? Two women fighting in the church. Wanting their way. I, I don't know. Maybe they're arguing about the color of the carpet or the kind of coffee that's at the coffee bar or uh, the kids' ministry. Whatever they're arguing over. I'm not denigrating women, but whatever they're arguing over, they're arguing and it's causing a division in the church. And Paul's saying we need to help them to get along. And the way we help them to get along is Paul backing up and saying, remember, I'm in prison for the gospel And I don't really care. If I live, I get to preach for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. It doesn't matter, the physical things of the world. Remember Christ. Remember how he didn't count equality with God. This is chapter 2, verse 5. He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped onto, but, but rather he became like us in the form of a servant. And he obeyed God, even to the point of death. Death on a cross, the most humiliating death possible. And yet, by doing so, he entrusted himself to the Father who had raised him from the dead and then exalt him and bestow upon him every name that is above all names and every knee in heaven and on earth and beneath will now bow at the name of Christ and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, remember what Christ has done? He gave it all up. Because he knew that there was a greater exaltation in the end from the Father. Give up your disagreement. Because you know there's a greater exaltation with the Father in heaven than the dumb quabble that we find ourselves in so often within the church today. And so Paul writes to encourage them to get along Just three more that Paul writes, and then we will take a much-needed break. We get to the letter of 1 Timothy. These last three, Paul is near the end of his life. We are uncertain if he uh, is released from prison or if he's still in prison. But what we do know is Paul knows the end is near. And so he is writing specifically to protégés in the faith to pass on this faith and to ensure that the church is in good working order. We get to the first letter to Timothy, 
And in AD 64, Paul writes to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he's encouraging Timothy to remain faithful, to equip the church. So much so in chapter 3, which is the uh, most known part of 1 Timothy, he gives qualifications for the elders or the shepherds of the church, those who care for you spiritually. Here, that would be myself and Chris and Chapin. And then he gives qualifications for the deacons of the church, those who serve the church uh, in particular ministries. And here, that would be a Dave and a Becca serving in particular ministries under the leadership of the elders. So Paul's wanting to ensure that there's a church structure that can carry on this gospel truth moving forward. He does the same to Titus. We see that he writes in AD 64 to Titus. We read in chapter 1 of Titus the, the glorious statement, I left you in Crete to put things in order. Here's how I want you to put things in order, to appoint elders in every town. And the reason why I need you to appoint elders in every town is because as their own poets say, they are liars, they are lazy, they are stubborn, and they need somebody to help them to be orderly. How encouraging. I left you there because they're difficult. Put it in order. And yet the order is for shepherds to take care of the sheep and to minister to the sheep and to fight against the false teaching. We get to chapter 2 of Titus where older women who are not elders or shepherds are also, though, to care for younger women and help younger women to learn the ways of God. Older men are to teach younger men. And in chapter 3, we must be careful of the way in which we talk and care for one another. Finally, we land on 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter, written somewhere between 65 to 67 A.D. You get a sense that Paul is hopeful yet tired. And so Paul is reminding Timothy to fan in the flame the gift of God that's in him. He writes that in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The, the, this is like marching orders. I'm going to die. Here's my will. Go do it. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. What you've heard from me. This is verse 2. Entrust to faithful men who can teach others also. Timothy, or yeah, Timothy, do not just hoard this truth, but teach men, and don't just teach any man, teach men who are willing to teach others. This gospel is so important that we should be teachers, helping others to know it. Why? Because chapter 3, godlessness will occur in the last days, and people will scrounge up for themselves ministers that preach to itch their own ears. So Timothy, in chapter 4, he says, be prepared to preach the word in season and out of season. No matter what time, be prepared to preach the word. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist. And then he begins to go through this list of people that have deserted Paul. That's really the end that we see of Paul, is 
This list of people who have deserted him with just a few names that have remained faithful. And yet Paul believes that this gospel matters so much, he wants it to continue on. So that's the recap of Paul's letters. We're going to take a short break and then try to, in a more quick fashion, walk through the other letters of the New Testament. So feel free to go ahead and take a break.